Recovery Elevator, episode 349. I feel like when you come from a place where every moment was kind of like a living hell, just not being in that hell anymore make, gives a sense of levity to everything. Life is always working in your favor. You can't heal in the same environment you became sick. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we have Tara. She's 37 years old from Canada and took her last drink on February 20th, 2019. Nice job, Tara. Listeners, this November 12th to 13th, we've got our annual online conference called Regionals, which is included with Cafe RE membership. This online AF event starts Friday after work and wraps up Saturday evening. We've got a great list of workshops lined up, and this event is going to be a lot of fun. I can assure you that. So join us for yoga, meditation, sound healing, and more. In addition, participate in several different styles of breakout rooms, such as your time away from alcohol and gender-specific share groups and more. Again, this is for Cafe RE members only, and it is included with your membership. Go to recoveryelevator.com for more information. And if you do join Cafe RE for this event, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Okay, let's get started. Last week, I spoke a bit about trying to stay sober while traveling in South America in 2014. The idea of sober AF travel was birthed in the spring of 2014 when I kept coming up short on my decision to quit drinking while traveling. Uh, And coming up short is an understatement. Let's go with way short. Before going on this trip, I promised myself I wasn't going to drink in Peru, Bolivia, Chile, or Argentina. And spoiler alert, I drank in all four countries. A lot. But let's back it up a little bit. Earlier that year, one of my best friends from high school asked me if I could be a chaperone for his social studies class that was planning a trip to Peru to do some service work and hike the Inca Trail to Machu Picchu. So I thought to myself, Paul, can we get our shit together? Can we quit drinking before this trip? Well, I wasn't confident in my answer, but when a free trip to Machu Picchu comes across your plate, that's a hell yes every time. If I recall correctly, I managed to string together a couple consecutive days alcohol-free before boarding the flight to Lima, Peru. Also, I remember on the flight that was scheduled to arrive in the middle of the night, around 2 a.m., that I wasn't able to sleep, and I was getting quite frustrated. I wanted to show up refreshed, ready to go, but I found myself getting irritated that I couldn't sleep. And so here is where my thinking gets flawed. I told myself, surely just one glass of wine would help me sleep and I could show up refreshed. Well, that one glass of wine didn't help, but surely the second glass would. And that glass didn't either. So I landed in Lima at 2 a.m. where I had a three-hour layover till my flight to Cusco departed at 5 a.m. Now, I don't know about you, but somewhere along the way, the stop drinking switch after one or two became faulty, as in non-existent. So there I was in the Lima International Airport at 2.15 a.m., telling myself, Paul, you're about to board a flight in just a couple of hours where you're going to meet your best friend and 12 high school juniors and seniors. We should quit drinking, buddy. And I was saying this to myself while walking towards a bar. So... Seven or eight drinks later, I boarded the quick flight to Cusco, and yes, I had a couple more on the flight. When I stumbled off the airplane and made it to the airport exit, I saw a guy with a sign on it that said, Mr. Churchill. I said, oh great, there's my ride. So I walked right past him, knowing that he has no idea who I am, 
and I order another drink at the airport bar and then meet up with a taxi driver right after that. I then get dropped off at the hotel room around 8.30 a.m., half tipsy, half hungover, fully exhausted, no sleep, and this is how the trip began. I remember my best friend looked at me and said, Jesus, Paul, what in the hell happened? I looked at him and I said, I know, I know, I'm going to be okay. And I was. I did button it up. I didn't touch a drop of alcohol on that trip. And I remember when the shuttle took my friend and the students back to the airport 10 days later, I told myself, I am going to stay sober for the rest of this trip. And I remember saying to myself, Paul, we've got 10 days AF. Let's keep this momentum going. And I did until I checked into my hostel and found myself drinking four hours later. So the point of this intro, listeners, is to call attention to the inner narration that convinces or justifies to us that we need to drink. This narration is extremely difficult to pinpoint for a couple of reasons. The first is because it's in our own voice. It's almost reassuring. And the second is because this voice is subconscious, and it's almost as if it's humming around in the background at all times. For some of us that have been drinking after work for a decade or two, this voice is nearly automatic. And this is the same way you probably don't remember much of the commute home from work because you've done it so many times that it becomes unconscious. So for me, that voice on the plane ride down to Peru said, Paul, if you show up tired and exhausted, you're not going to be much help to these kids. We need to get some rest. So I was fully convinced by my own narration in my own convincing voice that one glass of wine would help me get some sleep on the plane. And that one drink turned into more than a dozen, and Chaperone Pablo arrived in rough shape. Ten days later, at the hostel, after my friend and high school kids left, I remember a voice telling me, Paul, there's no way you can have a drinking problem. You just went ten days sober. In addition, you're traveling South America. Everyone else is drinking. That's just what we do. And that decision to have a drink at the hostel later that night set off a whole sequences of challenges and misery that unfolded in the following weeks in Bolivia, Argentina, and Peru, and the ensuing summer till September 7th, 2014, when luckily I quit drinking on that date. And while in South America, I'm lucky and blessed that nothing serious happened to me while down there. I remember being blacked out on buses, walking home late at night in unlit back alley streets. All of this with having all my senses dulled. So let's chat a bit more about this voice that convinces you you need to drink. The first step is to become aware of this voice. And then we want to create space or distance from that voice and the first drink. So keep in mind, this is a practice. It takes practice. And some of you, just like myself in this story, may not even be aware of this voice. So here are some things I want you to try before taking that first drink. And listeners, I'm well aware that sometimes not taking that first drink is like trying to stop a freight train propelled by gravity and steam going down a sharp decline. Sometimes it just happens. But even if we do take that first drink, progress can still be made. The way you make progress is by creating space from the initial urge or craving. Again, we want to add space from the thought of drinking and the act of drinking. Again, that's from the thought and the act of taking that drink. Now, space doesn't necessarily mean time or waiting another hour until you drink. This is helpful, but that's not the kind of space I'm referring to. I'm getting at inner space, mostly in the mind. And we don't have to create this space either. It happens automatically. 
Once we recognize there's an inner narration that isn't us that says we need a drink, then space is created automatically, and that's the byproduct from this awareness. It's seeing that we are being consumed by a bundle of thoughts convincing us to take a drink that creates the space. So after this is seen or noticed with awareness, there is a gap in thinking. Space is created automatically. Again, we don't have to create this space. We just have to become aware of this inner narration. And the space at first, listeners, maybe it's only a second or two. And like I said, this is a practice. But over time, we want to let this space build. And keep trying to recognize when this inner addict voice begins to take over. It's quite sneaky and convincing. So when I was on this trip in South America, I wasn't aware of this voice. I thought the voice was me, and it continually got the best of me. I do want to share with you a grounding experience that helped me for the rest of the trip. While in the Atacama Desert of Chile, which is strikingly similar to the geographic landscape of southern Utah, kind of like Moab, if anyone has ever been there, so I signed up for a stargazing, star viewing excursion. The $60 price tag seemed high to me, but I knew if I didn't have something planned for the evening, I'd be toast. So we took a Jeep away from the city lights, and I saw the brightest stars in my life, which I didn't recognize because I was in the southern hemisphere. As the guide pinpointed planets, galaxies, star clusters, and solar flares with his green laser, a sense of calm began to arise within. It's tough to put this calm into words, but I'll give it a shot. First, I could clearly and easily see I wasn't the center of the universe. And two, the deeper me knew I was made from the same stardust that everything else was made of. I felt connection when I desperately needed it. So if you find yourself spinning out emotionally and stargazing is a possibility, step outside, take a breath, and look up. Listeners, before we hear from Odette and Tara, let's hear from Exact Nature. Exact Nature's safe and healthy CBD-based products are formulated to help you with the challenges of quitting drinking, such as addictive cravings, depression, anxiety, and lack of sleep. Learn more about these products at exactnature.com. As a Recovery Elevator listener, use the code RE20 to receive a 20% discount on your order at checkout. That's RE20 at checkout. And thank you, Exact Nature, for being our newest proud sponsor. Paul, thank you for another introduction. And Recovery Elevator, please help me welcome Tara to the show today. Tara, how are you? Oh, I'm doing great. I think I already mentioned I'm sort of battling the nerves, like this part of me that is always nervous about putting myself out there and how other people are going to perceive me, but trying to just let it go. You know what? I really appreciate you calling it out. I feel like when we say what's actually happening, we kind of release some energy and don't give it as much power. So I'm glad you're sharing. I still sometimes even get nervous hosting and interviewing. So it's totally normal and we're in this together. So we're going to yeah. do great. <laughs> Yay. Yeah, I felt it was the same way with cravings. If I didn't talk about it, they just got stronger. Or even when I was at like a party in early recovery, I would just go around telling everyone how nervous I felt and it made me less nervous. I bet. I bet. And Tara, when was the last time you had a drink? Um, my sobriety date is February 20th, 2019. So it's been a little over two and a half years, which is wild. <laughs> That's amazing. We actually have a similar timeline. So I'm curious to hear more about you. But before we get started on your history with drinking, can you let everybody know where you're from? How old you are? What do you do for a living? What do you do for fun? Do you have a family? Just a little bit about yourself. 
Yeah, for sure. Well, I am uh, 37, but if you subtract all the years that I was actively drinking, I think I'm like 18. Um, (laughs) Emotional maturity wise. I live in Montreal in Canada and I I don't have my own family, kids, but I am very close with my 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 family, my parents, my my brother. Um, I do a lot of things for fun because I just kind of find life to be fun now. So kind of everything I do is for fun, even if it's something that I'm doing for work. I, I do a bit of voice acting which is awesome. It's not a full-time thing yet, but I'm going to keep working at it. I do some part-time cleaning. Sometimes I paint some houses. I do a lot of writing. I have my own podcast too, which is still in its early stages where I kind of took a memoir that I wrote about my experiences with alcoholism and I read it and then I talk about all the issues that uh, come up based on the chapter. It's kind of an idea that I just came up with myself called Addicted to Recovery, the interactive memoir. And it's taken a lot of my time. So I'm trying to work on having a bit more balance with not doing all of my recovery stuff by myself, because I'm still active with uh, 12-step communities. And it's important for me to keep those relationships strong, because they're really what got me here in the first place, having those relationships and accountability and, and real friends. You know, I feel like I have real friends which is amazing. I love video games. I love reading. I just, I just love everything. (laughs) I love that you said everything I do is for fun. I mean, gosh, my husband, like bless his soul and his patience because my dialogue that keeps being being a repetitive dialogue is like life is meant to be enjoyed. I know we have to be grownups. I know we have to pay bills. I know we have to work, but I don't want to feel like I'm in the rat race. I just want to enjoy, you know, and like, oh, sometimes it just doesn't come out right. But I love that you just said everything I do is for fun. What a way to live. Yeah. Well, I feel like when you come from a place where every moment was kind of like a living hell, just not being in that hell anymore, it make, gives a sense of levity to everything. And yeah. if I'm going to do something anyways, even if it's something that could be considered a drag, like today I was painting some baseboards at um, uh, a property and I'm like, okay, how do I make this fun? I can put on a podcast. I can maybe sing to myself a little bit. So yeah. And I, I'm also very resistant to, I'm really trying hard to live a life that's still creative. And I sort of resist the kind of nine to five thing too. So I try to mix it up with doing as many different things as possible. I love that. I love that you take that responsibility back to yourself and do what you need to do to make it fun, you know, and that is so true for for many things. So I love that. Thanks for sharing. Oh, I was just going to say that's Mary Poppins wisdom in the movie Mary Poppins. She says, in every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. You find the fun and snap the job's a game. (laughs) That's kind of like my mantra. I love that. And Tara, let us know a little bit about your background and your history with drinking specifically. When did you start your relationship with alcohol? When did you realize alcohol wasn't serving your goals? And what got you to be here on the show and to quit drinking? Okay, well, it is such a, a long and sordid story. So I feel and I don't want to go on a drunk log. So I'll, I'll try to stick to kind of the more important elements of it, because I can't really tell the whole story. It would be like, years because <laughs> it was years i i feel like in many ways my relationship with alcohol was always a very fraught relationship it all always had something to do with 
rejecting myself. It was always kind of a product of self-loathing in a way, because when I took my first drink, I was about 12 years old. And at the time, I had a lot of my needs met. I was I was happy in school. I had a lot of friends. It was probably one of the only periods of my life where I was well adjusted. So I had so I drank and I got drunk and I acted stupid and I didn't drink again for a couple of years because it didn't do anything for me. Then when I started drinking again, when I was around 15, at that point, I was unhappy. I felt I had moved to a different school where I felt highly alienated. I was suffering from some form of of depression. Um, It's like all these snakes and spiders had crept into my brain. And all of a sudden, alcohol served a purpose. All of a sudden, it was filling a need, a need to like replace myself almost like I I needed to not feel like me anymore. So then when I drank, it was like, bam, it was like, okay. Mm -hmm. And it, it didn't take off completely at the time, but it was, it was definitely became something that I couldn't imagine myself going to do a social thing without it, because I didn't want to be me. I didn't want to show up to that party as me because I didn't like me and I didn't think anyone else liked me. So I thought that if I could just take this magic potion that would allow me to act like somebody else and feel like somebody else, I could be somebody else. So it just became sort of a necessary ingredient for that. I feel like the major shift happened when I was 18. A really good friend of mine took her own life, and then I promptly moved to a new city. And those things kind of compiled together at the same time, took it to another level where suddenly I was drinking in the morning. Suddenly I was drinking by myself. Sometimes suddenly I was drinking just to manage my emotions. And it was a very sad and lonely place to be. And alcohol sort of became my primary relationship at that point, I think, and sort of remained that way until I got sober, like, week, um, like 17 years later, I think the first time I actually said to myself, I am an alcoholic was during that time when I was 18 or 19. And I didn't actually get sober for any meaningful length of time until I was 35. And I think one of the problems with that is because I had just gone through a significant tragedy. So I thought that I was drinking because of that. If I had just started drinking in the morning and drinking before class and um, and all that kind of stuff and that circumstance had not happened, I think I would have been like, whoa. And I think other people around me would have been a lot more alarmed, too. But I feel like they were also very permissive with me because, you know, they could see that I was in pain and I was suffering and I was self-medicating. But it just got its hooks into me. It just got its hooks into me so much that it just got linked with with everything I did. Like I couldn't I couldn't imagine seeing other people without alcohol, but then I couldn't really imagine being with myself without alcohol. So that's when the wheels really fell off. And th- and there were certain periods of time where it got a little better, a little better because I would find like, you know, I would find some relationship that I thought was going to save me. And it didn't really save me, but it kind of kept me a little safer for a while. Mm-hmm. Or um, I would go to school again after I got kicked out of the first one. And I thought like, oh, well, maybe this will be the thing. And I could kind of pull myself out of complete oblivion for a period of time. But it never really got better. And it's kind of funny because there, there's a lot of talk about bottoms. And I had so many of those. And they didn't really do anything for me. I think in a way, I had kind of cast myself as this character in this tragic melodrama. So when bad things happened, 
it, it seemed consistent with this character I created who bad things were supposed to happen to. Like the, when I got kicked out of theater school, that should have been a really tragic moment for me, but it sort of fit into my narrative of myself as this failure of this person that the world was against me. Right. And then, ooh, I had proof the world was against me. Or when one of my many boyfriends slash saviors broke up with me, it's like, oh, look, you know, poor me, poor me. And but then the things that happened continued to get worse. Like I remember one time I woke up just in a pool of my own blood. That wasn't fun. And I ended up in situations where I was taken advantage of sexually. And it just it would just continue to get worse. But I started just to feel like I belonged at the bottom. So nothing really shocked me anymore. It was like pain just kind of felt like very normal to me. It felt like home. Oh, like- yeah. This is this is such an important point that you're just hitting. Like it was your new your new normal and your homeostasis that it, it was hard to get out of it even longer, I bet. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. It's it it, it became sort of homeostasis and the weird thing was I, I've been to rehab many, many, many times at uh, 12 um, overall inpatient and yay, Canada, because um, <laughs> if, uh, if, if I was in the United States, I know that wouldn't have been possible. And I would get there and I would feel start to feel better. And then I would start to feel really uncomfortable about feeling better because I didn't know what to do with myself. Like I knew how to drink and screw up my life. I didn't know how to make a schedule and follow it. I didn't know how to make my bed. I didn't know how to have relationships that weren't all about me. I didn't know how to uh, be responsible. I didn't know how to I didn't know how to take care of myself and not just in like a basic way of, you know, showering or whatever, but in a way of taking care of my emotions. So I would try to find a way to escape it. So there was a lot of, oh, I'm in rehab and now I'm going to find, now I'm going to refocus on this man that I met here. And he's going to get me out of that itchy place of not knowing what to do with myself because I don't know how to like myself. So I'll find someone else to like me. Or I would start really focusing on the way I looked and get really obsessive over my body and start focusing like, oh, I need to lose this weight. Just anything to not actually really change. Did anybody know in your circle, like socially, how were you? Did anybody know you were going through the struggle all of these years or were just internalizing everything? Well, people definitely knew because you can't hide it when when you're falling down drunk. You know, you can't really hide it. I, I think in my early 20s, I had this persona of like, woo, I'm a party girl. And it was very much I had a lot of bravado about it. Like I would brag about how much I could drink and I would brag about a lot of the bad things that I was ending ending up getting into. And I would brag a lot about uh, like I would I, I kind of took pride in being in not being a good person in a weird way. It was just this kind of uh, I'd become this villain in my own story, but in this way that I thought it was cool. And I would also surround myself with people who tolerated it to more, more or less of an extent. My family, my poor family, you know, they were so, so worried. And the few friends I did have who, who actually stuck by me, like I put those people through hell. I really did. 
And then when they would try to give me ultimatums or when they would try to ask me to get help or things like that, I would, or, but then I would just relapse again and the cycle would start, or I would just find someone else who would tolerate my behavior. You know, I'd find some guy that I could, you know, trick into tolerating me for a while who had his own issues maybe too. So I put people through a lot. And the fact that my family is still with me, the fact that they never actually gave up on me after like almost 20 years of this, like, my goodness, they should have medals. Yeah, it's, it's a lot, you know, the, it, it it's hard to say it, because I definitely don't want to trigger people. But the, the damage that we do, which is basically just a reflection of our pain, but it ends up being collateral damage. A lot of the times it, it's a lot, you know, we do need to at some point be accountable and realize what we're doing to situations around us and those around us. So what happened after Tara? Like you did have basically like a, I was doodling cause I take notes as I'm listening to just make sure that I'm actively listening. And I was drawing like a little Mason jar full of bottoms, like little Aww, tags that say bottoms that. because it's like so true to so many people moments where there's like two, two, two roads, one where people, don't get help because they feel like they haven't had a strong bottom or another group of people where we've had so many bottoms that we're like, why wasn't that my bottom? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like, what what am I waiting for? Like literally, what am I waiting for? So what happened, Tara? You know, I, I wish I could say that I had this big dramatic mountain moment where, Mm -hmm. you know, I, and I've had a couple of those, but then relapsed afterwards anyways, like these like big moment of clarity where I can say this was the moment but I didn't. Uh, I feel like I had all these big dramatic moments where I would make all these sort of false promises to myself and other people. And I'd be so desperate. But meanwhile, there would be this tape playing in my head of like, oh, but how can I get around it this time? You know, um, and right before I went to rehab for the last time, well, you know, knock on wood, is there any wood around here? The last time I had just been kicked out of school, uh, another school, um, where I was going to study social work because I thought I could help other people (laughs) because I had showed up drunk in class more than once. And, you know, once again, I was going into my 12th rehab and I honestly didn't think anything was going to be different because I'm like, you know, I had kind of given up on myself in a lot of ways. But I kind of feel like the fact that I had given up on myself meant that I had also kind of given up on trying to, mm, I don't know, uh, try to r- trying to run the show a little mm-hmm. bit. Like I stopped almost trying to think for myself. I, I remember walking into the detox thinking, because uh, I uh, thinking, oh man, this is a pretty cool detox. They let you bring in your phone and your laptop. I can watch videos all day. I'll have to remember to come here next time. Next time I need a detox. So I didn't think I was, you know, I didn't think it was going to be any different. And that very act of being resigned in a way, I just kind of started going through the motions without trying to run the show myself. I, I, when I got out, I just went to meetings every day. I went to my outpatient group. I I just did the things that people kept telling me to do. I got a sponsor. I uh, like I did all the things that people kept telling me to do. And I had tried to do before, but I wasn't really halfway there anymore. It was just kind of like I was just there. I was kind of scared. And one thing is, too, too, they didn't let me stay in the rehab. They made me leave after 12 days because I had been there so many times before. So when I left, I didn't feel great. At around like 30 days, I start to feel great and I start to feel invincible. 
But after 12 days, I just felt raw and vulnerable and freaked out. And I didn't get to spend the whole time in rehab figuring out a relapse plan. Instead, I was trying to figure out ways that they were going to keep me. Rehab was the only place I felt safe. So when I got out, I felt so vulnerable, so vulnerable. I was actually scared I was going to relapse as opposed to having already planned how I was going to relapse. And a lot of things were just blind luck, I think, too. Like I, uh, I ran into a woman at one of my first meetings that I had been in treatment with, and she was also going to a meeting every day. And we just started going together. And that created an extra layer of accountability. My parents started breathalyzing me, which was a bit of a blow to my ego, but it really helped. And I, I started taking the right medication for my anxiety. That really helped. Just like all these little things really helped. And I didn't have that much control over a lot of them. And then, you know, one day after another, after another, after another, actually just kind of, yeah, I think the best advice anyone ever gave me um, is you can't uh, think your way into better acting, but you can act your way into better thinking. And that's kind of what ended up happening. I love that saying, you know, and I recently read somewhere, it was a, a Buddhist book. It was all about talking it was talking all about right thinking and right mind mm. and how thoughts are the words of the brain and we need to have the right thoughts in order to act accordingly. And I was like, well, that's funny because in recovery, it's the complete opposite. We actually mm -hmm. don't have the right thoughts. We need to do the right things in order to hopefully have the right thoughts because the thoughts, I mean, even I still struggle with the thoughts. I feel like they're the last thing to slowly shift Mm -hmm. um, it's the thinking mind, you know, that is part of the disease, obsession, whatever we want to call it. It's what remains long after we quit drinking is the thinking mind and all of those thoughts. So I love that you said I did the things without trying to run the show. So I think this is also the best advice that I could give to people. I had a similar experience as you in terms of just that thought process of I'm just going to do what people tell me to do. For me, it stemmed from a place of not trusting myself because mm -hmm. trusting myself would always yield a bad result. So huh. I just said, you know what, like, just give me the instruction manual. Tell me what to do, where to be when I need to be, and I'll do it. And I think that doing that and getting enough of repetition in really helped me gain momentum. So it sounds like we had that similarity in our stories. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's, I, I really liked what you said about the thoughts being the last thing to go too, because I can talk myself into anything. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'll wake up and I'll, I'll realize that my brain is still thinking old thoughts. I'm like, yes. dude, what are you doing? Are you like stuck in 2015 or something? What is you? What are you doing? Mm -hmm. Like having just really outdated thoughts. And it's just, but of course, though, you've been like, if you run a pattern, a pattern of thinking, it's a habit, a, a very ingrained pattern that sometimes we've been running since for 10, 15, 20, 30 years. And we expect just because we don't drink for a couple of days, our brains are going to completely start thinking happy, wonderful, squirrel, rainbow thoughts all the time. Mm -hmm. Probably not. Yeah. I thought myself into relapse so many times, but I never managed to think myself into recovery, strangely. You know? Yeah. They say we do think about the relapse long before it actually happens. And, and I think we've talked about this on the show before. It is healthy to have a fear of relapsing. Um, For sure. It's when we feel like we got it. You know, Paul, who started this show, always says, 
I got this is a, is a dangerous path to go down because that's when it, it gets a little bit tricky. I think I have a healthy fear, healthy relationship with those relapse thoughts that, that do come and go. And I have to, like you say like, Hey, we're not, we're not five years ago anymore. We're here. We, we, we have these thoughts, but we're not the same person. It requires <laughs> so much pep talking, negotiating, walking ourselves back, walking ourselves forward, like so much brain work. I feel like sometimes still in recovery, I have days where I feel so emotionally exhausted and it manifests as physically exhausted. And I'm like, no wonder, like the whole day I was negotiating with myself and trying to get myself on this side of the path, which is the like side that is using my tools, that is in recovery, that is not sabotaging, like that takes so much work. So tell me, Tara, you said after the first 30 days, you felt much better. How was it though? And you know, how was that first couple of months once you were past 30 days, you were riding a pink cloud, but what was helping you? How are you feeling? How was early recovery? Oh my goodness. It, the funny thing is, is that, you know, I had never had any experience with being sober any longer than a couple of months since I had been 18. So I, I didn't know what it felt like. So, you know, I thought that I was done after, after like, like, I thought like, oh, this is as good as it's going to get pretty much after about a month. And I thought that I was fine. But, you know, as, as you know, as you were sort of mentioning, I was constantly mediating these conversations in my head that were just, my God, my brain sounded like the subway in rush hour. It was just like nattering, nattering, nattering all over the place. I was so self-conscious. I was so, uh, I would walk into a meeting back when we were still allowed to do meetings with other humans in person. <laughs> and I would just be having all these conversations in my head about what everyone else was thinking about me. It was so loud up in there. It was, it was not easy. Uh, but I thought that it was because I didn't have anything else to compare it to. So I'm like, oh, I feel so much better now because I still did feel better than when I, you know, couldn't walk up a flight of stairs without, you know, getting winded. And when I couldn't get out, of, you know, I still felt so much better than that. But there was a lot going on. I also had a partner who was in recovery, who was struggling with his own sobriety. So that was really tough, like trying to hold on to my own uh, recovery when I had a partner who was struggling. And yeah, I just, but I, and I felt like a fraud all the time. You know, like I, I, I really felt like, oh, I'm just fooling these people and I'm fooling myself. And like, why am I even bothering? I like, I know I'm going to relapse anyways. This is kind of stupid. <laughs> you know, like there was this, this, there was this constant thought in the back of my head that like, that I was just tricking everybody. And you know, the funny thing is I still feel that way. Sometimes I still get this voice in my head that says like, who, who do you think you're kidding? You know, like you're not in recovery. Come on now. Like with your history, come on. What, like, what do you have to say about anything? <laughs> it's like, I don't know who you're fooling. Not me. It's like, yeah, like you said, like constantly doing all this mental work, but it's so much, it's so much easier now than it was in the first couple of months. Like, like I, I said before that my brain used to sound like the subway at rush hour. And now it maybe sounds like the subway on off hours. <laughs> it's like, you know, there's, there's a little bit of murmuring going on at all times, but but I was also really, really lucky to have the support that I did, like to be in a city where there were so many meetings. There's like hundred, there's like dozens of meetings a day and to have my output patient support and to have, and I was building relationships in recovery. So I had a lot of things keeping me in place in a way. 
you know, but when I think back on just how completely frenzied my brain was at all times, it like, my God, how did I live like that? Well, the thing is, normally I didn't. Usually it would get the better of me and I would relapse. It's just I never got to the point where it got easier. No, like around, like around, I would say after around six months, I started to notice that things had slowed down a little in my brain, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it takes time. And in terms of like your daily habits and your daily routine, did you have to change some of that in order to protect your sobriety? Or how did all of this look from the outside? Yeah, uh, well, the thing is, I didn't really have much of a routine because it's really hard to maintain to actually establish a life when you're in and out of rehab all the time. So mm -hmm. I, at the time that I got sober, I hadn't had a real job in almost 10 years. I had been in and out of school periodically, and I would often have to drop semesters because I would need to go to the hospital or I would need to go to rehab. And this time I'd been kicked out and I'd managed to put together a couple of semesters that I had finished somehow. Um, but other than doing classes here and there, I didn't have a routine to disrupt, which was kind of good in a way that I I really had the freedom to, and my family was so supportive. Like they let me stay there with, I stayed with my parents because I, I couldn't, I couldn't support myself. And, you know, I had the freedom to really commit fully to my recovery. So that kind of became my job, mm -hmm. like going to my meetings and my outpatients and my therapist groups and, you know, connecting with people in the program, doing regular meetings with my sponsor. I just kind of did full-time recovery for for the first little while and i'm just and i know that not everyone has the privilege to be able to do that and i'm so grateful that i had my family considering what i put them through like the amounts of times i've made my mom cry oh god the fact that they were still willing to give me another chance and give me that time to really you know invest in myself and so i just sort of pretended i was kind of going from scratch and created new routines like i would get out of bed and and I would work out every morning because I wanted to feel like my body was working again. And I was working in the garden with my mom. I was helping her in her in her garden. And that kind of reconnected me with nature and my and just how it felt to like do things with my hands. And so I just kind of put new things in because you, you have to replace the old with something new. Right. Because previously my pattern had kind of been get through whatever you actually have to do that day, which was maybe like uh, a class and drink, you know, and spend a lot of time either loitering downtown because I didn't want my family to see me. I just spent a lot of time just hiding out or hiding out, um, uh, you know, or in bed. And you were going to, you said AA was part of your recovery. Were you going to meetings daily? Were you building community as well? Yeah, I was going to meetings daily, sometimes more than one a day. I was also doing an outpatient group therapy thing. And I really, uh, and like I said, I was so, so my social anxiety was awful. And I, I had finally taken the right medication that made it a teensy bit better, but it was still, it was still really bad. But I was really lucky that I did have a woman that I knew from, uh, from when I had been in rehab that, you know, was sort of like a touchstone for me. And, and I really stuck with the women because even though I was in a relationship at the time, I knew myself and I knew that if I even, if I even gave myself the teensy weensiest little chance of engaging in a little flirtation with someone on the side, 
I might as well throw my recovery completely out the window because not only would I sabotage my relationship, I would, you know, like I, I make trouble for myself if I give myself even the teensy weensiest little opportunity. So I really stuck with the women and I focused on, you know, building relationships with with uh, with with the women. And I have a couple of friends in the program now who I just love so much. They're a really important part of my life. And I've and there's this deep kinship that comes from knowing someone and they're, when they're so raw and vulnerable and having them having seen you in the state of being raw and vulnerable. And it's yeah, it's, it's really intimate. And I felt that a lot when I was in treatment, like this intimacy with people. But when I went to AA, I would often feel really alienated because most of the people there had been sober for some chunk of time. And the fact that a, a lot of my earlier friendships in AA were with people who were kind of a similar vintage to me is not usually advised in the sense that you're all vulnerable, it's harder to help each other. But for me, it 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 really worked because I was so intimidated by the people who had strong sobriety. My sponsor has strong sobriety, but a lot of the people that I became close with didn't yet. And we kind of just helped each other on that rocky road. Having that community and those friendships, like you said, is something you also mentioned at the beginning of the interview. It is a game changer. You know, it is those authentic relationships where you can just be yourself and not feel like this broken person. It's it it changes everything. Yeah, and when you can really, we can really kind of hold somebody else's perceived brokenness too, and. And it sort of serves as a mirror because you're like, oh, this person thinks that they're broken, but I think that they're lovable. And you're like, wait a minute, maybe, <laughs> mm -hmm. maybe, you know, maybe I can apply that same level of compassion to myself. And that wasn't easy, but but I always had trouble feeling like I, I fit in and I feel like drinking. I mean, that's such a common story that you hear. But, but drinking was a way for me to kind of reject myself to try to make other people like me. But strangely, people didn't tend to like me all that much better when I was drunk. But I didn't like me. And it was such a paradigm shift to actually find people who I wasn't, you know, who I didn't. Well, I actually, my relationship was that with them was based on me not drinking like I would be sabotaging those relationships if I did drink and that was that was awesome so there was no I like I couldn't cheat you know and so many and so many there's like this this shortcut to intimacy that I always used to take with alcohol and I couldn't take it but I have to say it, it didn't come easier easy to me at all because like I said I I've been in and out of AA for about 10 years before I uh before I really committed to it and a lot of it was me just finding it really, really, really hard to talk to people and being very intimidated by people and having a lot of attitude about what I thought people meant when they said God. But I just feel like it, it kind of came together. I was open in, in the right way at the right time. And I found other people who were receptive at the right time. It just, I don't know, some, it's weird because I was going to some of the exact same meetings with a lot of the exact same people, but they felt like completely different meetings this time around, you know? Yeah, something had changed in you versus something had changed outside. So I love hearing this. At this point, Tara, do you still get strong cravings or how is your sobriety today? You know what? I, I don't, which is crazy. Well, I don't want to say crazy. That's a dismissive term. But I, I find it mind blowing that I no longer get cravings. I get dreams quite a bit, which is weird 
that, you know, I still get, I still get plenty drunk in my dreams now and then. And then I wake up and I'm like, oh, wow, ew. Um, <laughs> and occasionally I'll have a thought like, like, I'll just have this like random passing thought that like, for example, they had a um, like this, like a cotton candy flavor of alcoholic beverage at the Depeneur the other day. And I passed it. And the Depeneur is what we call a corner store in Quebec. Um, and I passed it and I didn't know it was alcoholic at first. I'm like, oh, my God, cotton candy. And then I'm like, oh, man, you know, <laughs> I realized it had alcohol in them. I'm like, seriously, at this point, if I if I drank, a, like I had a sip of it, like, come on. And I'm like, seriously, Tara, come on. So I'll have the occasional sort of thought like that. But I feel like. I have a sense of humor about the fact that I have thoughts like that and that keeps them from turning into cravings because like there is this sort of there's this sort of meta me sort of observing the silly me who was having that thought being like, oh, come on, you know, like, oh, come on. What are you thinking? You know, you can't do that, you know. And so, yeah, I haven't had a strong visceral physical craving to the point where like my heart is racing and I'm sweating and I'm running this loop over and over and over in my head about how I'm going to get it and how I'm going to take it and having this almost like erotic experience happening in my head with me in the bottle like that. That's what it used to feel like. It was almost full on erotic. These fantasies I would have about the first time with my with my bottle after a period of abstinence. So I haven't had a thought like that in like almost two years. And so for me, my recovery is not so much about whether or not I'm going to pick up a drink. It's at this point, it's about how I'm showing up in the world. I, am I carrying forth the principles of recovery that I believe in in my day to day life? I've also expanded my sort of spiritual practice to get into a lot of Buddhist perspectives. I don't consider myself a full on Buddhist but uh, that is kind of my guiding moral compass in a lot of ways. And am I, am I acting in accordance with that? And am, am I being the person that I have decided I want to be? And, mm -hmm. and I feel like if I'm consistent with that, if I'm, if I'm being consistent with myself in terms of taking inventory on how I'm showing up in the world, then I won't need to get to a place where I'm going to be worrying about cravings. So, but that's a maintenance thing, right? It's, so I feel like if I totally let that go and I wasn't checking in with myself and I wasn't doing the, the reading, listening to podcasts, talking to people, going to meetings, if I wasn't doing all those things, I might be in a really different relationship with my brain right now. Yeah, you have to be doing the work and using those tools and growing that self-awareness. And it, it sounds like you're doing it. So you should feel very proud, Tara. And you said close to the intro and when you were sharing your story that you drank because you didn't want to be you. You said, I didn't mm -hmm. want to be me. So what is your relationship with yourself now in terms of self-esteem and how you've learned to live with yourself, basically? You know, I feel like there's kind of almost like a, a, like a cast of characters in my head. And they all kind of have their own idea about who should be running the show, you know? And not in a full-on dissociative identity disorder sort of way. I'm not trying to, not trying to suggest that. And... I kind of have to make sure that none of them get out of hand, like have like a staff meeting with them sometimes and be like, OK, and I have to I have to monitor my own thoughts. You know, like mm -hmm. I, ha I have to notice I have to have the ability to step back and notice if my thoughts are running away with me. Like if, you know, the kind the kind of person that wanted me to drink myself to death, if that person has somehow gotten into the driver's seat and is telling me that 
I don't deserve to be happy and that I've like, I'm, I'm never going to amount to anything if that kind of negative abusive self-talk. I really have to take a step back and be like, Hey, you know, and be stern with myself at times and then take, pull it back and understand that that person is a part of me that in a weird way was only trying to protect me in that, you know, I didn't want to get disappointed, but for the most part, I, like, I enjoy my own company now. Mm -hmm. I really do. I like being by myself, whereas I used to try to avoid it at all costs, almost a little too much where I have to watch out about isolating. I feel like the negotiation that I have with my mind is very much like that with a relationship with another person, right? You have to work out your differences now and then. You're not going to agree all the time. And if I can get this sort of separation by not always identifying the thoughts that I'm having, recognizing that if I do have a negative thought or if I have a disturbing thought or if I have a, a drinking thought, it doesn't have to mean anything. And it doesn't have to mean anything that it doesn't mean anything that I can just go about my day the same way I got sober in that if I'm doing if I'm like it's more important what my feet are doing than what my brain is doing. Ultimately, if I can still show up to my own life in the in a way that I can be proud of, then, you know, that's that's the sort of important thing, because I don't think I'm ever going to have a brain that's fully free of demons. Mm-hmm. Right. They, they still kind of live in there. But, you know, they're you know, they're usually in their cages. <laughs> but it's learning. Yeah, it's learning to manage and navigate those relationships. So it's it's really neat hearing you talk about it and just with the sense of acceptance as well and and with a sense of owning also your shadows and the parts of us that maybe we don't necessarily love which we all have i feel like for me for the longest time i was wanting to not address all of that but it's mm. going to be there so it needs to be reconciled with and managed differently and negotiated with and all the things so yeah. it's amazing tara to hear your journey you totally deserve to be on this side and you are in recovery no matter what your imposter syndrome imposter <laughs> thoughts tell you so congrats. do you get those sometimes too oh my yeah. god completely even with things like this show and just being in recovery or people just saying like hey your show has helped me your interview mm. helped me i'm like but i'm in it too like i couldn't get out of bed today do you realize we're on the same train here like yeah who am i so it's it's kind of crazy but uh ultimately we're just all going through very similar things, each with our own context. And it's just great that we're sharing. I think that through sharing and just having these conversations, we do so much healing. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, I really appreciate you, Tara. I feel like we could talk for a while, but we have reached almost the top of the hour and our rapid fire round. So if you can Ooh. answer these questions in 30 seconds or less. Oh, that goodness. Would be... I'm so not good at brevity, but I will oh, try. You're going to okay. be good. Okay. And these are going to be <laughs> not really hard questions. So all right, here goes the first one. What would you say to your younger self? Oh, you're okay. I think I would just say like, you're, you're okay as you are. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. What is your favorite ice cream flavor? Oh, goodness gracious. Oh, oh, there's so many. They're all so good. Ah, okay. Um, chocolate chip cookie dough. Let's just say that. It's not even probably true, but what has recovery made possible for you? Everything, really. I would just say the ability to actually be present in my own life. And that's that's everything. What parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze? Well, similar to what helped me, 
your brain is your your brain is tricky. It's it's going to talk you into all sorts of things. So you can't think your way into better acting, but you can act your way into better thinking. Best advice I ever had. So might as well pay it forward. Right. Thank you. And before we depart, Tara, give listeners your own. You may have to say adios to booze if line. Okay. Well, I told you I didn't prepare, but this is the only one that I did prepare because I saw the <laughs> answer to the question. And I think I'm going to trademark it. So you may have to say adios to booze is if you can replace the word you in any love song with your drug of choice, like for example, everything I do, I do it for booze. I can't live if living is without you. Nothing compares to you. I go crazy for you. You know, if you could just like take any of those love songs and you can, they still make sense if you're thinking about drugs and alcohol. Ah. <laughs> that is such a good one. Tara, you're going to have to send us that video. You know, KMAC posts all these videos on our Instagram where people actually say it and make a little video and get it posted. This one's good. You're going to have to send it to us. <laughs> okay, well, you'll have to you'll have to tell me how I can do that. I will. I will. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I it was so wonderful you. to talk to you. And I just I know we're out of time, but I just wanted to say thank you so much for the work that you're doing. I feel like it's these types of com of conversations that make people feel less alienated. They're really healing. They're really like I identified with a book before I ever came out to another person about my alcoholism. So this could be that sort of thing for someone else, you know, listening to those stories. And thank you for being part of the solution in that way. It's really honorable what you're doing. Thank you so much, Tara. Let's stay connected and I will talk to you soon. Thank you for sharing. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful rest of your day. You as well. Very well, Timari. That wraps up our interview for today. And before I say adios, I want to remind you of something I heard recently. I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts, the We Can Do Hard Things podcast by Glennon Doyle, and the concept of bravery was being discussed. What does bravery mean to you? A great example of how our definition of this word can vary uh, was explained in an example. And the example was the following. A dad was talking to his daughter at the checkout line at the grocery store. And he was saying, if you decide to ride the big roller coaster on Friday, that's brave. And if you decide to not ride the big roller coaster on Friday, that's also brave. Which of the bravery definitions is true. The one that rings true to you, right? The one that aligns with your values, with your inner knowing, and with your truth. Choosing to live an alcohol-free life is a huge act of bravery. The act may not be perceived as a brave one from the outside, but from the inside, you know this is the right thing to do for you, and only you can feel that certainty. In this particular episode that I'm mentioning, the hosts also talk about how bravery can sometimes feel off. They say that bravery can feel like lonely clarity. That really resonated with me. I felt that. Anyone else? Sometimes sobriety can feel lonely. Maybe when you hit that first party with a six pack of bubbly instead of a six pack of beer. Maybe when you try to explain to friends that don't get your decision to ditch the booze. That can feel lonely, but you're brave. You're standing up for yourself and you're being an advocate for yourself. And that is so brave. We are so brave. Remember that you're not alone and together is always better. 
Recovery Elevator, let's continue to be brave together. I love you guys. Get out of the story. Get out of the story and use the mind to locate the body. Move the energy inside by talking, walking, and most importantly, trusting that the body already knows how to do so. We cannot fight a drinking problem or an addiction because it's trying to tell us something and we must listen. It's nudging us in a certain direction. Listen to the heart and follow your gut intuition. This will never mislead you. People often ask me, what's the one thing I can do? My response is always the same. Burn the ships. It's these repetitive thoughts that always drive you to make the same decisions. It's these familiar decisions that always lead to the same actions. It's these familiar actions that always result in the same outcomes. It's these same outcomes that constantly result in the same emotions. It's these familiar emotions that give you those familiar feelings. These feelings that always lead to the same thoughts, thereby completing the cycle. If you can recognize this, you will be empowered to change your thinking.